We are on the eve of Pentecost. And Pentecost is the birth of the church, the day in which Christ called the church into being. And Pentecost is next Sunday. But on the eve of Pentecost, most churches, or certainly many churches, observe what is called uh, Ascension Sunday. It is the, uh, the day in which we celebrate, which we recognize, and which we give uh, pay attention to the fact that Christ, after speaking final words to his disciples, ascends into heaven. And in Acts, we have a description of that moment in the very first chapter of Acts, beginning with verse 6. Jesus speaks words, uh, words of uh, foreshadowing the mission that the church is going to be called to. What disciples, remember we call ourselves the Christian church, disciples of Christ, followers, people who are committed to following, to trying to become Christ-like. So, beginning in the sixth verse, Here's how that scene, Jesus' last words before the ascension, are spoken to the disciples. So, they had come together. They asked him, Jesus, they are asking Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And with those words... Ascension begins, happens. Jesus ascends. Well, the disciples come with a question. Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And remember, all the disciples, everybody in the movement at this point, or almost everybody in the movement, are Jewish. And so... Having grown up, uh, perhaps going to Sunday school, the disciples all uh, remember that the Messiah will come and the Messiah is supposed to restore Israel. So it's quite natural for them to ask that question. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus' vision, and in fact everything that he does in his ministry that we have known about and read about up to this point, uh, Jesus' vision is much greater uh, in expansion, in, in scope, than simply the kingdom of Israel. But he doesn't deal so much with, with that until a little bit later, when he reminds the disciples what the mission will be. He really responds to three questions, one that's very specific, when, and the other two are implied. When? Jesus says, it's not for you to know. 
well, what? What's going to happen then? What are we going to be doing? You're going to receive power. Before anything happens, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, but, but uh, once we receive that power, how, how, uh, how are we going to go about this? Uh, tell us. Tell us how, this, uh, how we're going to handle this, this receiving of power. And Jesus says, you are going to be my witnesses, the church. So, to the answer, the answer to the question, when, it's not for you to know. And over the course, and even in the last 50 years... But over the course of the history of the church, people have wanted to know, well, when's Jesus uh, coming again? The early church wanted to know that. Most of Paul's letters assume that Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon and very soon. It's going to happen quickly. It was later when, when other things began to be written. Uh, other, the Gospels, for instance, most of the Gospels were written after Paul's letters. Uh, gospel writers, uh, part of at least part of their motivation was, well, okay, well, we know Jesus will come, but in the meantime, uh, it'd be good if people would know who this Jesus is. If there's testimony, if there's witness to who he is, and so they wrote the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It would be good if they knew something about the early history of the church, about how this all came to, to, came to be and, and, and what what Jesus is uh, hoping the church will be. So Luke not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he wrote Acts. Notable efforts in the last 50 years, back in the early 1970s, a man named Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey can still, you can still watch him on TV today if you can find the cable channel that he's on. You've got to search around if you're that interested, and you've got to stay up really late to see him. But he's still on, and then back in the 1970s, he wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, and in that book... Uh, Lindsay said, I can't give you the exact time and date. I can't give you the exact place, exact time and date, place, any of those kind of things. But I can tell you it's going to happen soon and very soon. The things that are going on in this world uh, point too much to Jesus' return that it will certainly happen uh, uh, much earlier than any of us are expecting or perhaps are prepared for. Well, the late great planet Earth... uh, by virtue of marketing that took place back in the, in the early 70s, but it was promoted after about three or four years of, as being a bestseller, as selling more copies than the, than the Bible. More, more uh, copies, more books of, of the late great planet Earth were sold than the Bible. Uh, fast forward, uh, you know, three four decades, and you've got uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins who wrote the Left Behind series, which is a fictional account, but nonetheless it points to Soon and very soon. This is the way it's going to happen, or at least uh, in their minds, this is the way it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come again. And uh, you better be ready. You don't want to be left behind. Well, Fred Craddock, one of my professors in, uh, in, uh, over the years of, of uh, my learning experiences, uh, talked about this idea of, of Jesus coming. And what seems to be sometimes the church's obsession with a win, even though Jesus has said, you're not going to know. But our obsession with it. And Craddock said, maybe we are so enamored with Jesus' second coming, or maybe the reason we are so enamored with Jesus' second coming is because we haven't dealt with, his, with the fact that he's come. 
You know, it's too difficult to live out the, uh, the challenge of Christ here, Christ with us, in us, living through us. G.K. Chesterton, uh, noted uh, theologian, philosopher of the early 20th century, said this about Christianity. He said, Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Maybe we are are, uh, more concerned about looking to when Jesus will come because we don't want to deal with what it means that he has come. That doesn't do away with the fact of Jesus' promise that the kingdom of God will come at some point under God's authority. We might as well quit messing around trying to figure that out. We can live in that expectation. But in the meantime, in the meantime, what do we do? If it's not for us to know, in the meantime, what do we do? And Jesus says, well, the what involves the fact that you're going to receive power, the power of the Holy Spirit. The power to do things differently, to think about things differently. To be open to the movement of the Spirit, wherever the Spirit may lead. So the two examples from uh, our denomination of churches that thought very differently about what God was calling them to do. And receive the power to act, to change. You know the old saying, change is good, you go first. Well, these folks jumped out there. One of the churches was a church in Indianapolis, Centenary Christian Church. Centenary Christian Church was located in a neighborhood that, that went into transition, that began to change from what had been kind of a working class white neighborhood to an African-American neighborhood. And it happened, didn't happen overnight, but it happened over time. And over that time, the church really was not able to reach the community that was around it. They tried. It wasn't that they were adverse. It wasn't that they didn't want to. They tried. It just wasn't working for them. Their numbers began to dwindle and continued to dwindle. They did a survey, a a research of the congregational demographics, and they discovered uh, just a few years ago that nobody lived within five miles of the church. Nobody that attended church lived within five miles of the church. They were all coming from, from some distance, some, some from as far as 15, 20 miles away. Uh, folks that had lived in that neighborhood at one time had moved long ago. Their resources were dwindling in terms of being able to keep up the building. They determined that, uh, well, pay, perhaps one thing we can do is we can uh, nest, have another congregation nest in our building. We have two, two uh, churches using the same building. And so they did that. They had an African-American congregation come in. And that worked. Uh, The African-American congregation uh, worked for a while. The African-American congregation was doing quite well. Centenary was continuing to struggle, and they they were the ones that were maintaining all the building. They were getting some income from the African-American church, but not much. And they were struggling with what to do. How do we continue? What do we do? They determined that their best course, their most faithful course of action was to... uh, give up the church, sell the church. And they naturally went to the African-American church that was already in the building and said, would you be interested in buying this church, buying this property? 
those folks said, we'd love to do that. Uh, and so then for the next three months, they tried to figure out if they could raise the money to, to, to uh, uh, come up with what Centenary thought the property was worth. And they had countless numbers of meetings. Finally, uh, Centenary realizing, and both groups realizing, there were wide, wide differences in, in uh, what could be done. Uh, folks at Centenary, the elders at Centenary, said, well, what, what, do you, what, do you want, what do you want us to do? And, and the pastor said, well, this is going to sound radical. Be honest with you. What we need is for you to give us, give us this property so that we can do what we need to do or what we feel led to do in this community. Well, the uh, folks in that congregation prayed about it. The elders prayed about it. And I heard the story from one of the elders in that church, and he was crying when he was telling the story. But he said, that's what we decided to do. We just voted ourselves out of existence. We legally turned over all the property to this African-American congregation. We dispersed other churches in Indianapolis. That was our way that we believed God was calling us to be faithful. And today that African-American congregation is thriving. And the folks that uh, were a part of uh, Trinity or our centenary are important parts of other churches in that community. Second example, First Christian Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, six, seven, eight years ago, six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, they faced a similar, similar problem. They had this enormous building that they could not take care of anymore. It was on valuable property, but they couldn't, they couldn't maintain the building, and their numbers were, were such, and the prospects of additional numbers were not uh, not uh, not good. And so they determined, well, this one thing, we, we, can't, we can't maintain this anymore. Uh, it is valuable property. Maybe if we took the money, maybe if we got the money uh, and, uh, and for a while met in a community center, maybe the Lord would uh, direct us and show us what to do. They sold the uh, building, land, and they got $6 million for it. Uh, as they were meeting in another site, they were approached by two other churches, congregations, a Lutheran church and a United Church of Christ, that had, were having similar problems, had similar problems. And, and they, uh, they said, we've come up with an idea, and we think this is something you all might be interested in. Instead of all three of us meeting in, in separate buildings, or you trying to, to think about building another building somewhere else, why don't we all pool our resources? Why don't we become a ministry center, spring house, we'll call it, and we can all be distinct, we can all be churches that, are, that worship on Sunday morning in our own uh, distinct way, but we also can be churches that cooperate with each other and work together during the week to do things that we could not possibly do alone. And so the pastor at that time of First Christian Minneapolis said, well, why did, why did you think of us? Why did you come to us? And the Lutheran guys, he said, I, I'll just be real honest with you. We knew you sold your building and we knew you had a lot of money. Well, uh, First Christian did partner with those three congregations and today they are Springhouse Ministry in Minneapolis. Uh, if you happen to walk in as a visitor 
to that uh, congregation, to that ministry, uh, you'll have to get specific instructions about uh, what your choices are as to where to worship. Because there'll be three worship services going on, and there'll be three different denominations that are conducting those worship services. And if you look during the course of the week, you'll see all three of those churches working closely together to do ministry in that community. The conviction to ask. You're going to be given power. You're not people without power. But the exercise of that power means trusting God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God may be asking asking you, may be asking us to do something that seems to be quite different, uh, quite radical. The power to act. Final thing is how. How are we going to act? Jesus says you're going to be my witnesses. And you're not going to just be witnessing to the kingdom of Israel. You're going to be witnessing to Jerusalem. Yes, we're going to remember Israel. You're going to be witnessing to Samaria. Yes, we're going to be witnessing to those that you have been uh, uh, at odds with for, for decades, for centuries now. You're going to be witnessing to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. What does a witness do? If you've ever been called to be a witness in a court case, witness is called to tell what they know, not what their opinion is, not what they've heard somebody else say. They're called to tell what they know, to wit. We're called to be witnesses, not just a, per- not just a person's, but also to institutions, to structures. To persons, we say God has a greater purpose for you. The God who uh, revealed himself in Jesus Christ wants to transform, change your life. Wants you to know, wants to assure you that you are loved by God. Wants to assure you that you're forgiven. Wants to assure you that God is calling you to greater purpose greater service in Jesus Christ. God wants you to know that God wants all of you, not part of you. God wants your confession of faith that that which you've seen and heard, you believe in Christ Jesus and embrace that. To structures, one of the questions that the church should be asking of structures, government, institutions, one of the questions that we should be asking anytime we see a, a, a policy that's being advanced or ideas that are being advanced is a simple question. Question that uh, Jesus expressed or answered for his disciples. Where is it that we saw you, Lord? And Jesus answers his disciples in Matthew 25. Whenever you've seen it, ever you've done it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to me. Question to ask of institutions, of government, where's the concern for the least of these, my brothers and sisters? And the church is called to challenge structures, government, institutions, with that simple question. Where is the concern for the least of these? And if it's not there, the church should have a good word to say about how it can be there and why it should be there. 
and what God has called us to do. Evangelism and social involvement are two sides of the same coin. If one side of the coin is missing, then the coin has lost its value. We witness, we tell what we know to persons, to people, and to institutions. St. Francis' words that were attributed to him, let your life, every day, let your life be a sermon. And use words if you must. These words, uh, I talk about change. Well, these are words that I have really not uh, changed in, in over 30 years since I writ, uh, wrote them when I was in seminary uh, 35 or so years ago. We were asked to, uh, to do a simple thing. Write a mission statement for, for church. What you think the mission statement should be. So I wrote these words in a class called Evangelism and Social Involvement. To proclaim the kingdom of God in all that we say, all that we do, and all that we are, so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, persons and structures might come to know and serve Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to proclaim the kingdom of God. Billy Graham uh, perhaps uh, said it uh, in a uh, similar, different way, but he said uh, the mission of the church, proclaim the whole Christ to the whole person, to the whole world. Expand the circle. Be God's people. God embraces us uh, as his church with power to act. And with a challenge. Be witnesses. Tell what you know. In all that you do. In all that you say. And in all that you are. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the challenges that are presented to us in in your word and through your grace. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to remember that people have been called upon to sacrifice in many and varied ways for the sake of the church. Help us to remember in the sacrifices that we have seen people make for, for our country. That things are possible when people are willing to give their all. When people are willing to trust in something bigger than themselves in order to make a difference. Lord, we pray that we might make that difference in Christ's name. Amen.